episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you. This will be the second part in a series where we discuss kind of uh, the context of a specific issue and talk about whether uh, it is absurd to believe in Mormonism because the issue that we deconstruct um, perhaps doesn't make sense. It is illogical. Um, there's better rational conclusions to see the information. And so today, uh, last episode, we talked about Adam, Adam and Eve, essentially, but Adam uh, as the first uh, human, as the first uh, man, and all of Mormon theology around that. Today, we're going to talk about the afterlife. We are using as a backdrop for these conversations, and at some point, we may move off of these um, this book, because we may end up moving to like a gospel principles book um, or a gospel doctrine manual and essentially tackle the basic theology of the LDS church to have a conversation about whether it makes rational sense if that theology adds up. And again, just to emphasize a little bit from what we said last episode, to be a rational thinker, you have to always accept the conclusion that requires the least amount of conjecture, the least amount of allowances. And when we have a conversation around data points, um, teachings of church presidents, for instance, teachings of church manuals, um, also juxtaposing that against research data, uh, we, we end up having a conversation about whether Mormonism makes sense on any particular issue. And then by the time the series is done, whether it collectively makes sense. So the book is Obscure Mormon Doctrine. It's written by Chris Jensen. And uh, today we'll be in chapter two, the afterlife generally. So I want to start by just saying that Mormonism sends you to its temples where you learn the signs and tokens that allow you, as Brigham Young said, to pass the sentinels who guard the gates of heaven. And I, I just want to juxtapose an idea of memorized ritual signs and tokens allowing you to go into heaven rather than your uh, inner um, feelings or morality or the... Uh, mindset you had as you made choices in your life about good or bad, right or wrong, healthy or unhealthy, responsible or irresponsible. Like we teach in Mormonism this idea that good people go to heaven and bad people go to outer darkness, and then everyone in between goes to these other kingdoms. And we'll get to that in a moment. Um, but note that at its core, Mormonism has this idea that when you go to the temple, you just need to memorize signs and tokens, and those will allow you to pass the sentinels to get into heaven. And so at least in that regard, the idea of what it takes to get past the gates isn't anything to do with good or bad. It's really how good your memory is, and that you remembered some signs and tokens which have nothing to do with righteousness or unrighteousness. So just to start with that, and, and I note, and I'll try my best to give ground where I can, I note that maybe still the good people are the only ones who get to the gate, but still strangely, only the good people who are able to display the signs and tokens 
uh, get to move into the celestial kingdom. Um, also, I want to note that as we get into what it takes to get into the various kingdoms and what it takes to qualify for outer darkness, that all of us have a thought processes in our head. And uh, we can only believe what our brain tells us to believe. For instance, if I tell you to believe in leprechauns, you recognize that that's impossible. You can't believe in leprechauns because you know inside your head that leprechauns don't exist. If I ask you to believe in uh, a flat earth, there will be a few of you out there who go, I know it's a flat earth because your brain tells you that the evidence for a flat earth outweighs a spherical globe. And But for most of you, you go, that's absurd. I cannot believe in a flat earth because the evidence isn't significant or convincing enough to me that I can fall on that side of the conclusion. The same is true, by the way, for the believer who's listening. The same is true for Mormonism. Most people on the planet don't believe Mormonism. Now, you might say, yeah, but most of them don't even know much about Mormonism. That's true. But what we do know is that of the people who are presented Mormonism, very few people uh, find it believable and convincing. And to be honest, even those who find it believable and convincing when it's presented to them, potential investigators, the reality is they are presented a very whitewashed, simplified version of Mormonism. And even when they're presented the most faithful version, the most simplified, most whitewashed version of Mormonism, very few people are convinced. If we laid out Mormonism uh, in all of its beauty and ugliness to folks and gave them a fair presentation, a balanced presentation of both the good and the bad, the contradictions, the things that add up, how it hurts people, how it helps people, we certainly would expect at that point for it to be even significantly less people who would accept Mormonism. So while most of the planet probably doesn't know much about Mormonism, what we do know is that out of every, say, 100 people or who, who are presented the gospel discussions by the missionaries, we're lucky if like 0.2% of that, you know, 0.2 of a full person join. And all you have to do is recognize that if you served a mission in the church, how much rejection you had to go through to find somebody who would join. And then the people who joined, generally within a few weeks to a month, they don't even show up anymore because it's not interesting and they're not buying it anymore. And so when you recognize that we can only believe what our brains tell us to believe and that very few people who are presented the gospel of Jesus Christ in its most beautiful, whitewashed, faith-promoting version, very few people find it convincing. And that's important as we go through this conversation, because we're going to talk about what it takes to get to heaven, uh, what it takes to um, be able uh, to qualify for the various kingdoms. And, and so that's part of the conversation. So let's start with the idea that Mormonism comes in different than other religions, and it says there are three kingdoms, rather than just heaven and hell, there's three kingdoms in outer darkness. And it says, hey, there's these three heavens, the he highest heaven 
uh, is available to those who you know keep the ordinances, have belief in the church, uh, go to the temple, get sealed to their family. Um, but I would want to start off here by just saying we are taught as Mormons that Joseph Smith gets revelation from God and is imparting these fascinating uh, ideas that that have been lost over time and are restored back into uh, the true and living church in the restoration. And so this idea that uh, God's theology has always been that there's three kingdoms in outer darkness, but because people misunderstood the Bible, because certain teachings have been lost, that we got away from knowing that there were three kingdoms in a hell. And what we found over the recent few decades as uh, folks have done deep research is that many of the ideas that are around uh, Joseph Smith's theology are ideas that pre-existed in Joseph Smith's milieu uh, in his uh, cultural context. And so for the three kingdoms, we know that there were other folks who were teaching this idea. One of those in Joseph Smith's time is Emanuel Swedenborg. And uh, Emanuel Swedenborg uh, teaches the idea of three kingdoms, even calling two of them by the same name that we do. I believe the celestial and the terrestrial uh, kingdoms, they have those names. And this is true for lots of things. Word of wisdom, for instance, another really easy one to point to is we have this idea in our culture that Joseph Smith um, restored a corrupted version of the Bible back to its purity. It's his Bible translation. But over the recent years, we now know that he plagiarized uh, significantly from Adam Clark's commentary in order to create that Bible revision. We never get that story in church. We never get that story from Joseph Smith. We are never told by Mormonism uh, that Joseph Smith is um, using sources in his uh, contemporary culture in order to create the theology and to um, give us added scripture. This happens throughout most of Joseph Smith's translation productions, Book of Abraham, Book of Moses, have lots of plagiarism from the New Testament and other things. But, but at least for this conversation, just to note that this idea of the three kingdoms is existing in Joseph Smith's culture, uh, other uh, philosophers and theologians have written about it. A second thing we need to note is that there are parts of the Bible that we Mormons refer to. For instance, uh, Paul says, uh, I was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. And we go like, oh, there it is. There it is. There's the mention of the three kingdoms. Um, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 29 uh, which talks about the various bodies that'll be uh, that are available in the resurrection, and we, it's where we get the celestial and terrestrial wording. But I also want to note that if we dive into biblical criticism, if we look at the way scholars understand the use of language, so the Greek and Latin um, converted over to English, for instance, in the Old and New Testament, when um, when we look at the theology that we Mormons claim is found in the Bible, the reality is that if we consult the experts and take seriously their criticism, they often point to the most acceptable and understood meanings of these scriptures 
And they're very different from the way that Mormonism has taken these scriptures and interpreted them. And as, as we'll get into, and as we talked about last week, in the midst of that, we also need to recognize that uh, Mormon prophets have often imparted interpretations of Old Testament and New Testament scriptures, theology, uh, laws, only to have later modern prophets disavow those past things uh, or to make uh, a statement that completely turns on its head the way that past Mormon leadership and believing members understood those ideas. And and so I, I say that only because if you go, well, yeah, but our prophet's right and the biblical scholars are wrong, the reality is often our prophets contradict others of our prophets on these very issues. So just to note that the three heavens is already in Joseph Smith's milieu. It's not a new idea. It's something that Joseph is borrowing from others in uh and, and I say that that because you could argue that Joseph Smith isn't borrowing. It's just that this other person and him both come up with the same true idea. The, the trouble with that is that we have enough data that says Joseph Smith absolutely is borrowing, such as Adam Clark's commentary in the Bible translation, such as several New Testament scriptures in the book of Moses, borrowing heavily from Luke and Matthew. Uh, such as the Book of Abraham, also borrowing from Adam Clark's commentary. Uh, I believe it's the Book of Jasher uh, or the Book of Joseph uh, that are used in that. Um, we know that the Book of Mormon has several um, plagiarisms from the New Testament in places that it, not just where it copies Isaiah over, but in places where it claims to be original text. Um, and so we have that. Um, so again, just to note all of that, the, the one idea that, uh, Chris Jensen here goes into is this idea of no movement among the kingdoms. Uh, he says that once assigned to a kingdom of heaven, it appears that there will be no chance to move to a different one. And I, I want to just note this idea that we have a gospel principle called repentance, and notice that once we leave this life, that repentance isn't available anymore. It's so strange, right? We get this one life to live, and this one life will affect all of eternity. And that many LDS leaders have taught that there will not be any chance of progression once our judgment occurs. So if we go to the terrestrial or celestial kingdom, if we go to outer darkness, for sure, we have zero chance to move beyond that. Let me just say, we'll get into this conversation a little bit further into this discussion, but you, we're going to need to wrestle with how fair that is, especially in light of what we know today based on cognitive science, where we recognize that very little to maybe none of our perceived choices do we actually have free will? And if you want to wrestle with free will, I would just suggest looking up um, Making Sense, Final Thoughts on Free Will by Sam Harris. He'll at least initiate you to the conversation. But there are tons of experts out there who wrestle with how much free will there is. And the conclusion by almost all of them who study this research 
is that because we can show, by the way, that your brain makes a decision subliminally 300 milliseconds before your conscious brain makes a decision based on its thinking. And we can see this in the world too. We like to think us humans make choices based on narratives in our head, based on past experience and nature and nurture and all those things. And yet when you watch, you could you know go to YouTube and Google a video of kangaroos fighting each other, for instance. The kangaroos almost certainly don't have a detailed narrative in their head, yet the action carries out and looks very much like a bar fight. Um, we humans go, yeah, that guy, he took my seat and I asked him to move and he didn't. So I got pissed and I threw the first punch and then he tackled me to the ground. And we have this whole story for why things happen. And the reality is that when you watch the video of the kangaroos, the, the truth is that we felt something and we reacted. And the argument that there's no, that there's little to no free will is that we feel things and we react. We feel things and we react. And language and narrative and story is all a later invention by, by human beings 200,000 years ago. But before there's language and before there's complex thinking, the reality is we can go to life forms that don't have that and they still respond and react in very similar ways that humans do. If something's a threat or uncomfortable, it moves away. If something is pleasant or enjoyable, it moves in. Um, we humans have been doing that long before we were human. Stories are things that came later. These stories we apply to things. So the idea that, so we'll have to wrestle with some of that here in a little bit, but to note here, my specific thing on this idea of no movement is that LDS leaders have actually contradicted each other. There are LDS leaders such as Orson F. Whitney, who suggested that progression uh from lower kingdoms to higher kingdoms certainly is possible. There are other LDS leaders who said, no, that certainly would not be possible. And just to note that prophets, seers, and revelators on something as important as whether we will have an opportunity to continue to progress in the life hereafter to the extent that we might improve our situation from a lower kingdom to a higher kingdom or from a lower part of a kingdom to a higher part of that kingdom is disagreed upon by the very men who claim that they can talk to God and give us the answers for how this all works. But it, he takes the position that the church teaches there is no movement. I'm simply saying you can easily go do a Google search and you'll come across tons of material of past leaders who did teach that you could move uh, and progress from kingdom to kingdom uh, after judgment. That repentance and change were eternal principles of the gospel rather than this short flicker of a moment to prove ourselves and the rest of eternity to suffer the consequences of that. Um, the next thing I wanted to mention, he says resurrected bodies. Resurrection means that our body will be resurrected and reunited with our spirit forever. All resurrected bodies will be glorified, but they will differ in quality. I just want to talk about what he's saying here. This may be something you're not aware of either. But um, in Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 2, and I grant to the apologists, 
um, the church would not consider this an official piece of its curriculum or official doctrine or teachings. But it only adds to my point that prophets, seers, and revelators have always been opinionated and have disagreeing opinions on the very way in which the plan of salvation will work. Hence, none of us can really know exactly what the rules are to the game. Uh, Joseph Fielding Smith taught, Bruce R. McConkie reiterated, and if I'm not mistaken, I would guess that Joseph F. Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith's father, would also have believed this. Quote, in both of these kingdoms, there will be changes in the bodies and limitations. Some of the functions in the celestial body will not appear in the terrestrial body, neither in the telestial body, and the power of procreation will be removed. I take it that men and women will in these kingdoms be neither man nor woman, merely immortal beings having received the resurrection. And so there's kind of an inside joke here among people who've left the church. It's called the TK smoothie. It's the terrestrial or telestial kingdom smoothie, meaning that your genitals in the life hereafter, if you don't make the celestial kingdom, will be removed. You will be neither man nor woman. You'll just be resurrected beings. But I can't make sense of that. That, that I struggle with that on several levels, one of which is that um, men and women, while there is significant overlap and often, you know, I shouldn't say often, but sometimes a woman has a very masculine mentality and approach to life. And, uh, uh from time to time, there are men who have a very feminine, uh, mentality or approach to life, but, but far and wide, a majority of men have male predispositions and women have female predispositions to get to the have to get to heaven or to some kingdom of of heaven essentially some kingdom of glory and to recognize like suddenly we're just not man or woman it would be important to recognize that this somewhat contradicts the family proclamation which talks about how gender is eternal if gender is eternal then we can't have someone be neither man nor woman even if they get a lower kingdom of glory such doesn't make any sense so again noting that prophets, seers, and revelators are continually contradicting themselves. Um, to note that uh, ordinances such as baptism, confirmation, and temple endowments, uh, no ordinances are required for entrance into the terrestrial celestial kingdom, nor are they required for entrance into the celestial kingdom by children or the mentally handicapped, um, but they are required to enter into the celestial kingdom for adults who have a, uh, I guess, relatively uh, mature mental approach to life. And uh, what I would add here is the ridiculousness of that, If and I hope you'll bear with me. Children who die automatically get the celestial kingdom in Mormonism. And we get it like, oh my goodness, they're so pure. They you know, they can't be held responsible because they don't know any better and they're so innocent uh, and seen as clean. But the reality is that if we allow every hundred children who die to grow up, they are going to represent the normal spectrum of adulthood, meaning that of a thousand children or a million children who die under the age of eight, 
so many of them absolutely no ifs, ands, or buts would have become murderers, would have become serial killers, would have become child molesters. So by giving children a free pass simply because they died neglects the reality of who those children would have turned into had they been given the opportunity. Um, it also says, by the way, that uh, animals too. He says not only humans will enjoy life after death, but animals and plants will also be resurrected and live forever. Not just the humans who you know and live on the earth right now, not only the animals or the plants that you know that live on the earth right now or have died, but all the humans who have ever lived and all the animals who have ever lived Brontosaurus, Tyrannosaurus Rex, all the plants that have ever lived will be resurrected and placed in these kingdoms. That's a lot of life forms. Um, there are also problems with that in that life forms die or are harvested and are eaten by us and other animals and other plants. Those animals and plants and humans are broken down, digested, and then become pieces and parts of us. So I eat um, a hamburger from a cow. I digest that hamburger. That hamburger now regenerates some of my new cells. It gives me energy. It does whatever. So it's easy in just theory to go like, oh, they all get resurrected. The reality, though, is that every living thing is made up of a billion zillion other living things. And so it's going to be really weird how we parse all that out to make sure that I get resurrected in all my glory, but that every animal and plant that makes up, and human, by the way, there is some reality that there are Cells in your body that used to be cells of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte, for instance. And, um, and, and there are reasons for that. And we don't necessarily have to get into those because some of those are disgusting. But to recognize that you are made up of matter and that matter that you are made up of used to be matter that other things were made up of. And so the absurdity of this idea, again, what does science say? What does rational thinking say? If I'm going to be a critical thinker and go, I want to pick out the best of ideas and I want to discard things that don't make sense or can't add up. The person who believes in the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have also absurd theology. And you as a believing Mormon, you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses and you go, I get that they believe it but I don't believe it because it's absurd. I can't believe they believe it. And you look at Scientology and you go, there's absurd theology there. And I can't understand how they believe it, but you also recognize that there are Scientologists who believe it. By the way, they look at you the same way. They think Mormon theology is absurd. And it's the point of these conversations is so that we can talk about, is it really absurd? And in the reality that all things will be resurrected and they'll be all perfected in light of the fact that all the matter that you are used to be the matter of something else, including your mother, by the way, um, when you recognize that, it, 
kind of makes it really difficult to make all that work in your head. Now, again, you can go with God, all things are possible, you know, just have faith, but recognize every time you use the excuse with God, all things are possible. You are yourself acknowledging that it is the less rational position, but that it must be true anyway. I'm not here to debate whether it's true or not. I'm here to debate whether it's absurd or not, whether it's rational or not. You get to decide whether you continue to believe in irrational things. And I would suggest that if the number of irrational things required to believe your belief system is insurmountable, then perhaps you have to consider letting go of that which is absurd, that which is irrational. Um, we can move on here. So resurrected bodies, animals, plants, all of that. Um, and then we talk about the idea of ordinances, that there's all these ordinances required for those who are adults and of a clear mental state but again, how many people reject Mormonism? How many people join but are inactive? How many people join but walk away within a few weeks or a month? Um, there's this idea that this is God's true plan of salvation and just how few people are going to get there. And then also those who get there, whether they got there really based on their righteousness or unrighteousness. So he does that chapter just on uh, the life hereafter generally. And then in chapter three, he goes into the celestial kingdom and he talks about those, um, what it takes to qualify for that. Talks about how God is there and Christ is there. Um, talks about how it's the glory of the sun. He mentions three levels, which we know that the celestial kingdom itself is split into three levels. Uh, he says the highest levels reserved for the righteous who enter into temple marriage called sealing. And just the act of entering a temple marriage does the trick. When in reality, whether your marriage is a shitty marriage or whether it's a good one, almost assuredly has nothing to do with whether you stay married or whether you initiated that marriage by going to the temple. Um, he says this state is called exaltation, the greatest of all gifts of God and the ultimate goal of existence. Only there they will be allowed to live as husband and wife and procreate forever. So Mormonism holds sex over your head. It's the only way you get to continue to have sex, which most of us enjoy, is to be sealed and go to the celestial kingdom. Otherwise, you end up with the TK smoothie, um, according to um, Joseph Fielding uh, Smith. So there's that. Um, also, like folks, 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I don't think, I don't know what the data is, but temple marriages aren't significantly higher. By the way, people who get divorced once are more likely to divorce a second time than people married zero and then get married once. If you get divorced twice, you're more likely to get divorced a third time than those who are married zero or one and get married their first or their second time. Um, marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. And we often want to point fingers and blame other people. But the reality is we have our own ego, our own unhealthy mechanisms. And even in Mormon marriages where there is lots of pressure to stay married, 
and to forge ahead, divorce is still significantly high, though probably not as high as the world. Not because it's a better way to do it, but because there's lots of pressure and shame and manipulation in continuing on in an unhealthy marriage where uh, outside the church, one might be more likely to throw their, their hands up and give up and disconnect from that relationship so that they can be in a healthier place themselves, mentally, emotionally, physically, even. Um, this idea of uh, the exalted that, you know, you got to be sealed, just recognize, look around your ward. How many of those folks do you think have shitty marriages? How many of those folks look like they have a good marriage, but if you were behind closed doors with them, you would see like, oh my goodness, that's not a healthy marriage. And the question comes in, does the gospel of Jesus Christ, as presented by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the true and living church upon the earth, the only true and living church with which the Lord is well pleased, does it really equip you to have a better marriage, or does it instead equip you to um, pretend to be something you're not, to continue pressing ahead no matter how bad the results are, and hence that you set yourself up for a very depressing uh, life that's full of trauma and shame. And I'll leave that up to you to answer, but only to sit with it and wrestle. Like, don't be offended by the question. Sit with it and wrestle with how healthy, loving, authentic, vulnerable, kind are Mormon marriages inside the LDS church. All right. Um, he talks about the qualifications. Um, Baptism, confirmation as a member of the LDS Church, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. You have to get the Melchizedek priesthood. If you're a man, remember men and women were different. Gender is eternal, and yet in the other kingdoms, it's done away, at least according to Joseph Fielding Smith, a prophet, seer, and revelator. Temple endowment is required. Temple marriage is required. But he talks about those who die in ignorance. What about those who die without a knowledge of the LDS gospel? They are not condemned and will have an opportunity to hear and accept the gospel after death while in uh, the spirit world. Uh, this talks about the scripture, right? Um, this is DNC 137, 7 through 8. All those who did not have an opportunity on earth to receive the gospel who in the spirit world repent and receive the gospel shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom. Um, here's the issue with this, and it's that, again, um, very few people when presented with Mormonism choose to believe in Mormonism. Super small percentage. Let's say it's less than one out of a hundred. And again, all you have to do is look at um, the mission work that goes on in the world and perceive how much failure and rejection a pair of missionaries have to go through before they find one person who will just sit with them and listen to the gospel. As we said earlier, also recognize the version of the church that those investigators are presented. 
And then even for those who believe in that very um, faith-promoting version of Mormonism, how many of them stay active uh, for even just a few weeks or a month and then recognize that even those who stay active for a long time, how many people are leaving the church right now who were both feet in? And and then you combine um, that idea with this idea that People like me, I, I used to be all in. I joined the church at 17. I'm a bishop by the age of 29. Um, but I continually am reading Mormonism. I'm diving into the depths of it. I want to know what, what all the things, all the messy stuff that has been taught by prophets, seers, and revelators. And on the first half of my um, journey in Mormonism, where I was in and believing, my brain told me that Mormonism was true. And part of it was um, unbalanced in favor of the church because the church taught me to trust emotional experiences as the way to know truth. And we can get to that in another conversation in a different episode, but let's recognize it, the very minimum people all across the planet have emotional responses to various beliefs uh, and perspectives are passionate about those beliefs and perspectives, believe they know because of emotion that those things are true, including other various religions, even breakoffs of our church who use the very same scriptures in the same system to pray, and that people arrive at different answers having emotional uh, responses received by their brain. And, and so as I got older, as I'm reading and reading and reading, my brain eventually turns and it goes, oh, emotional uh, responses being the way in which I know truth doesn't really hold up. There's too much data that contradicts that. And I can see a lot of deep deception and dishonesty on the part of leaders to the point where it becomes clear that they were presenting a very faith-promoting version of Mormonism, intentionally obfuscating and hiding parts of Mormonism from me that would have me feeling like maybe all of this doesn't add up. And in spite of the fact that Elder Ballard says we've never hidden anything, the reality is it is demonstrable that LDS Mormonism has hidden things. If you want to know what some of that is, simply go read uh, Greg Prince's book on Leonard Arrington, the former church historian. Simply go on YouTube and look up our episodes of Mormonism Live, uh, which is a weekly live show we do where we're constantly deconstructing the history and showing how the leadership and its apologist are being deceitful uh, being deceptive in how they try to present Mormonism and the answers to difficult questions. And so it got to the point where my brain could only believe what my brain could believe, and the evidence for and against Mormonism became so lopsided that I had no choice but to, but to believe the uh, side of the scale that the critic's perspective of saying, like, look, none of this adds up. And leaders have been constantly trying to hide things to keep you from discovering that things don't add up. 
if you only look at the authorized sources, only the um, correlated curriculum of the church, only the things it wants you to be studying and reading, you will get a very small, whitewashed, uh, faith-promoting version of Mormonism, and you will not even comprehend the things that you do not know. In other words, you cannot know what you do not know. And until you are presented with things, you think you understand the gospel, you think you understand church history, you think you understand Mormonism, but you it's like you've only been given a sliver of light so you can only see one little spot in a large room. And then when the lights are flipped on, there is so much there you couldn't have even known was there. And, and I simply suggest that you continue to read and think and study these things out. And if anybody goes and reads this stuff and learns about these things, uh, you'll, I think there's not a single one of you that will come back and go, no, no, no. I, I read a bunch of stuff. Mormonism is exactly what it told me it was. Even the believers in our church who have read all the stuff and still believe, and there are some of those, but there are those in every faith system, by the way. There are Scientologists and Jehovah's Witnesses who understand the mess and still believe. Of the folks who have done that and still believe, they also self-acknowledge that what Mormon, the message Mormonism presents about itself isn't accurate, to the point where Richard Bushman, former uh, stake president, former church patriarch, uh, believer uh, in Mormonism, still active, uh, acknowledged that the dominant narrative of Mormonism is not true, meaning the correlated version of Mormonism that we present, where everything is fits nice, it's all clean, we got good answers to everything, that that version of Mormonism simply isn't true, and that we need to present a more honest version of who we are if we value presenting ourselves accurately. <clears throat> When you recognize that people can only believe what their brain tells them to believe, then you, you have to sit with how many people can't believe in Mormonism and whether this plan of salvation really works to the point where Mormonism has <clears throat> this really cool teaching about eternal families, but then recognizing that pretty much every family in the church isn't eternal because some folks in that family, their brain tells them that Mormonism can't be true. Hence, even after joining and being active, they lose their belief and uh, they distance themselves from the church. And I know we pray for them to come back, but most people who go inactive don't come back. And those folks who read the church's history and theology at its depths and leave almost never come back. It is overwhelming. The majority of them go and uh, are gone forever. And so even this idea that we're going to have an eternal family, me and my wife were married in the Washington DC temple. We were definitely a faithful family. We were one of those four or five families in the ward that did everything. Um, every one of us deconstructed Mormonism on our own timeline at our own pace but not a single member of my family is in the church anymore. Not because any of us went to the others of us and said, hey, you should leave. It's not true and convinced them, but rather on their own, they all decided it's not true. There are lots of Mormons today who claim to be P-I-M-O, physically and mentally out. 
There are members of your ward who do not believe, but they pretend to believe because they don't want their marriage to end in divorce. They don't want their families to uh, shun them. They don't want to lose their friends. And I think as you look around, you also notice that there are people stepping away from the church who used to be all in. Go ask them. Go ask them, why did you leave? What was it? What did you learn that told you that you that this wasn't the place to be anymore? And then really take seriously the things they say. It is happening like crazy right now. People are leaving. Now, most believing members see that, and the church tells you to see that, as just more evidence the church is true, right? The very elect shall fall. Uh, there shall be very few people uh, who accept the gospel. But just recognize that people leave absurd faith systems all the time. Scientology suffers significant loss. Jehovah's Witnesses suffer significant loss. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists, other high-demand fundamentalist religions create a really high level of pressure to believe, but when people think critically about the system, they end up being more likely to deconstruct it and step away. Uh, so just to note that as well. Um, the majority of human beings on the earth, if presented a balanced view of Mormonism, good and bad, would not be able inside their heads to make it fit and work and believe in it. Um, very small, to the point where today on the planet Earth, they're 0.2% of people are Mormon. And I think in the United States, it's somewhere around like 1% of people are Mormon. And yet we've been sending 60,000 missionaries out year after year after year. By the way, that number is going down. Year after year after year, it's in the 50s now, 50,000. 57, I think, was the last one. Uh, year after year after year, uh, missionaries are knocking on doors. Everybody's gotten at least some knock on their door from an LDS missionary inside the United States. Um, people aren't convinced. It's, it's, it's a religious system when there are a million other religious systems and when people look into the church, they find a lot of discrepancies and uh, theology and historical moments that they just can't buy into that the church is true. All right, talks about no second chance. There is no second chance to reach the celestial kingdom by accepting the gospel after death if one has had the chance to accept it in life. Again, repentance is only a temporary principle of the gospel um, because it, it, the moment you reject it, and again, you only reject it because your brain tells you to reject it. Mormonism likes to tell this story that people know the church is true, but they reject it anyway because they want to be lazy. They want to sin. They want to drink alcohol. They want to do drugs. They want to have promiscuous sex. The reality is it's like they've got the cause and effect backwards, and it plays a huge part in what someone's real motives are. The, the reality is that when someone doesn't buy into this way of living, these rules that, you know, you can't drink coffee. And I go like, that's just bullshit. Like I drink coffee every day. I, I don't believe that drinking coffee is bad. I don't believe having uh, consensual sex with another adult uh, is bad, right? And so folks can be in this life making decisions about alcohol, drugs, um, 
certain commandments. For instance, if we go into uh, the Old and New Testament, there are rules and laws in there that even you as a believing Mormon have discarded completely because you just don't buy it. The Old Testament says not to mix certain fabrics in clothing. Uh, the Old Testament says that if your daughter is raped by a man, that man shall present you certain shekelings of silver, and he shall then be allowed to marry your daughter, the very victim he raped. And you and I go, that's absurd. We got to a point in history where we said, I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to choose to discard that. And so all of us, even you, are discarding parts of Mormonism and parts of Christianity and parts of God's rules because you don't see it as making sense anymore. Early Mormonism used to teach that people of color were less valiant in the pre-mortal life. It taught that as doctrine. Go look up the 1949 First Presidency letter. And yet today, our church says we apologize for all that racism in the past. Those are now disavowed theories. So recognize that all of us, including modern church leaders, are cafeteria-style Mormons. We're all picking and choosing the parts we like, and we're discarding the things we don't. Because our brains are telling us that certain parts of it are not reasonable. They don't make rational sense. And they're so irrational, and it's so contradictory to the way we see the world, that we've already gotten to a point that we've discarded it. To the point where... Um, Spencer W. Kimball discards uh, Brigham Young's uh, racist doctrines, and then later leaders discard the uh, sub-doctrines under those that explained why that primary doctrine was in place. You see, we keep becoming more enlightened as a people, and we keep looking back and discarding the very things that prophets, seers, and revelators uh, have taught. So this idea of no second chance, this one life to do it, this one life to get it right, how many people can't get inside their head and change the way they feel and believe about things, um, that we don't trust emotional experiences as being the end-all, be-all of truth. And what you end up with is a system of how people get to heaven or get rejected to, from heaven and whether that system is really fair and objective. Does it really put the best human beings in the celestial kingdom, or does it put the um, most ignorant and blind following um, those who are just blind sheep who just do what they're told to do? Are those the people that get to heaven? And if we're going to create it, if God is legitimately wanting to create a system that gets the very best people to heaven, the most righteous, is getting the most obedient Mormons to the celestial kingdom, really the right way to accomplish that. And I'll let you think about that. But the reality for me is it makes no sense. It's not rational. How Mormonism determines who is celestial and who is not is a very different process than figuring out who is good, who is the most good, and who is not. Uh, there's a section here called Calling and Election Made Sure. Certain righteous people have their calling and election made sure, which means that God seals their exaltation in the celestial kingdom while they are still alive. Um, this is called, you don't know much about this if you, because the church intentionally chooses not to tell you about it. But there is, it gives you a little bit like I just read right there, where you are taught to believe that on some future moment, 
Jesus is going to show up if you're good enough. And he's just going to tell you that your sins have been forgiven. You, uh, you, you have made it. Uh, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You may enter into the rest of the Lord. Your your calling and election is made sure. And But the reality is that process isn't real. What is real is that the church does another ordinance that very few people get called the second anointing. The second anointing is only available to the very elite in Mormonism. You have to pay so much in tithing. You have to be in the highest levels of leadership. Um, to get access to this. You are taken to the temple on a Sunday when nobody's there, generally an apostle, but sometimes a 70, as well as another member of the 70, will then lay hands on your head and give you the second anointing. Your spouse will then give you a blessing. You will wash each other's feet. Jesus never shows up. You're just given an added ritual that basically says you are the elect of the elect and your salvation is guaranteed. But there are folks who have received that, who have left the church, who criticize the church, and the church still takes no action against them. One of those is Tom Phillips. You can listen to his story on a Mormon Stories interview. He describes the entire second anointing uh, ritual, and uh, you can judge for yourself if that is if the process by which one is um, given the chance to receive that second anointing, if that process really does filter out the good people from the bad people, like are these really the very best people or is it a system that instead uh, rewards high tithe payers and rewards those who find themselves in the highest levels of leadership? In other words, is it a good old boys club or is it a way that really does filter out the best of people from those who are not the best of people? Um, it continues here, uh, where the celestial kingdom will be located on earth, which after the millennium will return to its original location near the planet Kolob. Two things here. We were taught that Jesus Christ is the savior for all of the universe that there are other planets that have life on them, but that Jesus came to this planet and died here and resurrected here and made an atonement for all the planets everywhere. That's absurd. It's absurd for lots of reasons. For one, lucky us. Aren't we the lucky people who happen to be on the lucky planet? So there's this idea that this will be the planet that the celestial kingdom will be in, and all the people resurrected, so not just the animals and the plants and the humans on this planet who have ever lived and died will be resurrected and given their glory, but also all the beings, plants, and animals on all the other planets on across all the rest of the universe. And we just so happen to be on the lucky planet where Jesus actually came and died and resurrected and made an atonement. We're on the actual planet where Joseph Smith actually restored the true and living gospel. And then this planet will be taken from its orbit and placed into some other orbit near the uh, planet, near the star Kolob. And that's where the celestial kingdom will be. I just want you to recognize if I told you that was the belief inside some other church, you would think it was absurd. If Scientologists taught that, you would go, that's absurd. If Jehovah's Witnesses taught that, you would say it's absurd. It's only because you've been raised in Mormonism 
And that's the lens in which you've been given meaning of the world. It's the way you interpret the world around you that you have this propensity to believe it. Like it, it makes sense to me because I'm Mormon. It's the way I know the world works. If you come to Mormonism outside of religion with a critical thinking mind, that belief is just seen as absurd. We talked last episode about how the earth was taken from some other orbit when uh, Adam and Eve fell and placed into its orbit in this galaxy. Again, here's the back end of it where it will be taken and moved to some other location. And I just want you to recognize how absurd that would be. Like, Think of the science behind what it would take to move a planet out of its orbit and what would happen to that planet if we took it out of its orbit. And again, your response will be, but with God, all things are possible. And just a reminder that that answer is an excuse when your own brain recognizes that you are trying to defend the indefensible. Um, With God, all things are possible or just have faith is your way of defending the indefensible. So you self-acknowledge when you use those answers that your answers are absurd. They are irrational. You just choose to believe them anyway, and you want to make room that at some future moment, long far beyond our comprehension, my absurd beliefs will be justified. Um, so think. So if you think of it in kind of that wording, um, again, if anytime you go, what if, maybe, Again, those are ways in which our brain articulates a position that we are going to defend the indefensible and continue to believe in the absurd. It says we'll receive a Urim and Thummim. All who enter the celestial kingdom will receive a Urim and Thummim. Um, Urim and Thummim, again, we were raised with a story that it is the spectacles that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. We now know today that the entire Book of Mormon was translated by a seer stone. Joseph put a seer stone into a hat, buried his face into it, obscured all light, and then dictated the Book of Mormon. That's the story that is now reality in the most faith-promoting way to see it. Um, Notice, by the way, that Urim and Thummim really refers to seer stones. He even mentions the word seer stone in the paragraph Um, seer stones directly connect to Joseph Smith's treasure digging. If you aren't familiar with that, uh, I would suggest you go read and uh, study up on Joseph Smith's folk magic. When Joseph was a young boy uh, around the age of 13, uh, he began to practice uh, the folk magic practice of treasure digging, where he would claim that there were treasures buried in the earth And he would get groups of men to go digging for those treasures. As those men uh, allegedly got close to a treasure, he would then uh, he would then uh, tell those men uh, that that treasure had slipped further into the earth, and they were never able to get any treasure. By the way, the treasures are also fictional; they're they're not real. Joseph claimed that there were silver mines and silver treasures buried by pirates. Um, and the reality is that uh, no such thing existed. It, it, it was just a way to try to scam people. He would get paid to head up these treasure digs. Um, and the only way he would get paid, and it was a easy work, 
because other people were doing the digging and all he had to do was bury his face into his hat and tell them where the treasure was. And so if he could convince people that he could find treasures, then uh, they would pay him to head up that dig and he could get money. Um, and he said as much as $14 a month, which back then was actually a, like a low, a low uh, end of pay, but enough to get by. And uh, so it was an easy way for a deceiver to get an income. The same seer stones he used in treasure digging, at least one of them, is the same stone he used to translate the Book of Mormon. We'll get into that in some future episode. But again, to recognize that your founder, who uses a rock to dictate the Book of Mormon, also used that same rock to scam people. And the scam that he had was that there were precious metals buried in the ground, protected by guardian spirits, and that he had to use his seer stone to find and eventually translate those records that many of those themes are overlapping in between the scam and the angel Moroni and the gold plates, the true experience that Joseph Smith had. Um, so there's that. Uh, so there's the receive the Urim and Thummim. That's chapter three. Now let's talk about the terrestrial kingdom. Who gets there to the terrestrial kingdom? He says, honorable people, blinded by the craftiness of men. So first off, these are really good humans who we acknowledge in Mormonism won't get to the celestial kingdom because they were deceived by someone else. Think about that. You're a good person, but you don't make it to heaven because your brain believed some person and the philosophies of men, you were deceived. You listened to somebody else and your brain told you to believe them. So you discarded the gospel message. Meanwhile, we're acknowledging that they are good people. They would have been celestial had they not been deceived by some other person and had their brains told them that the church was true rather than telling them that something else was true. Again, is the plan of salvation the most effective way to get the really good people to the celestial kingdom? And that sentence, honorable persons blinded by the craftiness of men, by the way, that's DNC section 76, verse 75, blinded by the craftiness of men, how could someone else have the ability to get in the way of a good person making it to the celestial kingdom. And it self-acknowledges here that such is the case. That's irrational. That's not a logical way to put this together. Next, he says, members of the LDS church not valiant in the testimony of Jesus in their devotion to living the precepts of the church. Again, people who are not um, willing to adhere to the gospel of Jesus Christ have their own reasons for why. We tell a story, We our lessons and our curriculum and our theology imposes that those people are lazy, they want to sin, they want to do drugs, they want to have promiscuous sex. But the reality is that there are lots of reasons. Elder Uchtdorf uh, several years ago said that the reasons for why people leave the church is not that simple. He says there are good people who leave. Um, so recognizing that there are good people who do not 
um, devote their lives and live in obedience to the precepts of the church, not because they're not good, but because their brains tell them that it's not true. Again, all I can do is have my brain weigh the evidence. You know, all I can do is do that. And whatever the whatever evidence is convincing to me, my brain is going to believe that side. Again, I can't believe in leprechauns. I can't believe in a flat earth. I can't believe that uh, I have 18 clones out there who are walking around. I can't believe lots of things because those things are absurd and they don't make sense. But yet we acknowledge that we punish the members of the church. These are just people, most of them are just people who happen to be born into Mormonism. And they can't exactly find Mormonism so convincing that they want to adhere their entire life to it. They don't want to be completely obedient because Mormonism doesn't make complete sense. Again, we talked earlier, including leaders, modern and past, we are all cafeteria Mormons. We're all picking and choosing. Think about it. What parts of Mormonism have you been told to do that you're not doing? And then you realize like, oh, you're also not perfectly obedient. Well, where's the line? What line of obedience do you need to have to be on this side and have salvation or that side and be in a, and be in a lower kingdom? Um, all of that gets tricky and a critical thinker wrestles with all of that. I, I deconstruct every piece of that and go, does that make logical sense? And what are the arguments against it? And when you, when you evaluate the counter arguments to your beliefs, there's a thing called a straw man and a thing called a steel man. A straw man is to create a ridiculous version of your um, of the counter argument, one that is easily defeated and then defeat it. A steel man argument is to put your put the counter argument in its best light. Create the counter argument that is uh, as well represented as possible. And then see if your belief can exist against that counter-argument, which one makes more sense. And often what you find in this arena is that apologists, people who defend the LDS church, create straw man arguments or, again, very simplified faith-promoting versions of a criticism so that you can easily knock it down and defeat it. Um, I don't want to sit and go through a bunch of those. We may spend an episode talking about that. Uh, but just to note, if you're really going to see if your Mormonism holds up, you have to come up with the best counter argument against your belief and see if it's still rational or if it's absurd. And if you don't want to do that, then at least self-acknowledge that you really do want to maintain your comfortable belief and you're really not willing to dive into these issues to see if it really is rational or holds up. And that's fine, but let's just all be honest about it. Next, he says, the heathen nations and those who died without the law, who are honorable but do not accept the LDS gospel in the spirit world. So this idea that there are places in the world and places inside the United States, for instance, where there are human beings who don't have a good foundation, they don't really have a good righteous morality. It wasn't given to them. It wasn't taught to them by their religions. It wasn't taught to them by their parents and family. Uh, they weren't raised with uh, good values. 
And so they are heathen. In other words, they are living less than a righteous life because they don't have a good foundation. And they will die and they will go to the spirit world and they will be given a chance to accept the gospel. In that opportunity, if they don't accept it, they do not make it a celestial kingdom. Now, I thought this when I was younger. I'm assuming many of you have thought it too. But then I, I sat and went, what are the conditions in the spirit world that people still might reject it? For instance, if I went to the spirit world and angels showed up and angels said, hey, I am Peter and this is James and this is John. We're here to teach you the uh, gospel discussions. It will look a lot like Mormonism because Mormonism was the true and living church upon the earth with which the Lord is well pleased. And so it will look very similar to that. We're going to teach you the gospel message, which will look and sound and feel and smell and taste like Mormonism. And, uh, but it's true. And you now have a chance to accept it. Well, guess what? Everybody's going to accept it. That's, it's ridiculous to think that as a human, my pride's going to get in the way. Like I'm going to go to the other side. And if that really is the message, I'm going to accept it. <clears throat> so for people to reject it or accept it in the spirit world, we now have to recognize that whatever the opportunity there is, it is also still clouded. It also still isn't exactly clear to the point where people will reject it or accept it there. Then you have to weigh this idea of whether the opportunity to hear the gospel in the spirit world and to accept it or reject it there has equal weight to your chance to accept it or reject it in mortality. And if the reward and punishment is the same, you accept it here, you accept it there, and you get to go to heaven if you accept it here, and heaven if you accept it there, and something less than the celestial kingdom if you reject it here, or if you reject it there, the next logical question is, how do we create a space where every single opportunity to receive the gospel in mortality or in the spirit world is on equal footing and ground so that those who make it and those who don't had an equal opportunity. And if they don't have an equal opportunity, then it's not equal and it's unfair. And Heavenly Father is unfair in how he presents an opportunity to make it back to him and be in the celestial kingdom. Again, what's rational? What's logical in thinking about all of this? And then lastly, those who hear but reject the LDS gospel while on earth, they were honorable while on earth and who later accept the gospel in the spirit world. So let me say this again. Those who hear but reject the LDS gospel while on earth, they were good, they were honorable, so they were righteous while on earth, and then later accept the gospel in the spirit world. Think about that. Think about that in light of the things I just said in the last 10 minutes. It, it seems to make no sense. Because it seems to honor that the chance to accept or reject it here wasn't equal to begin with, because those who reject it here are righteous, will have another opportunity to accept it again, but they just won't go to the celestial kingdom. 
like whether I got a chance in this life or not deeply impacts whether my chances are better or worse in the next life. Again, that's not fair. That's not a uh, responsible way for a heavenly father to implement a plan of salvation to literally do the best job at weeding out the righteous from the unrighteous. And I hope as you're listening that that is making sense. Um, That's the end of uh, chapter four, and that talks about the terrestrial kingdom. And then we'll finish up here with chapter five, the telestial kingdom. Excuse me. So uh, those who will receive the telestial, this is the lowest kingdom. And then we can even talk about uh, hell or outer darkness uh, and finish up. And hopefully we can do this in less than two hours. I really hope you're enjoying this conversation. I hope it's fun for you to think about all these things. And I just want you to notice that how many places is the belief in Mormonism not cohesive, not rational, not logical. And if it's irrational in a hundred places, what are the chances that that is irrational? It just doesn't add up. Um, The telestial kingdom, those going to the celestial kingdom include those who received not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. These are those who are, um, these are folks who are sinners. Um, maybe I should back up and say this again, because there's four different kind of groups of folks. Um, these are those who receive not the gospel, neither the testimony of Jesus, neither the prophets, neither the everlasting covenant. So these are folks who never accept the gospel of Jesus Christ in any of its tangents. These are sinners such as liars, sorcerers, adulterers, whoremongers, and whosoever loveth and maketh a lie. These are murderers, and these are those who were wicked on earth, did not repent of their wickedness while on earth, and do not accept the LDS gospel in the spirit world. Um, It's such a strange thing in Mormonism that murderers go to the celestial kingdom but good people who could not get their brain to believe in Mormonism after having once believed it and who reject it now and leave are even worse than the murderers, right? And we'll get to that when we talk about the outer darkness. And when you understand the argument that there is likely no free will and at best there is very little free will, then all of this doesn't make sense either. For example, Uh, I once had a conversation with a geneticist. I did an interview on genetics uh, connected to Mormonism's position on homosexuality. And um, we know that being gay or lesbian has epigenetic factors, meaning that there, we, we can at least attest that whether it is genetic or whether there are chemical processes that are going on inside the womb, that either way, one of those two things is affecting whether someone is born gay or straight. 
And we know this because there are also other epigenetic factors that coincide with it. So for instance, when somebody's uh, ring finger is longer than their middle finger, and there are humans who are like that, I shouldn't say, I'm, I'm saying that wrong. Ring finger is longer than their pointer finger. So there are folks who this finger is longer than that finger, and there are folks whose that finger is longer than this finger. Whichever way it is, which one of them has a higher propensity for the person who has that finger longer to be gay, a male to be gay. We also know that the further down the birth order you are, if you're the second boy born in a family versus you're the fifth boy born in a family, the fifth boy born from that mother is more statistically uh, more likely, higher, much higher likely to be gay than uh, the boy who's born second, um, for instance, in birth order. And so we have these epigenetic factors that play uh, a part. So once you understand this genetics, I talked to this geneticist and I said, let's talk for a moment about like child molesters or serial killers. And um, her argument is that science demonstrably imposes that uh, folks who are uh, attracted to children and uh, have the motivation to carry that out also are born that way. It is epigenetic. And so we know, for instance, like serial killers have to have certain um, conditions in place. They uh, pee the bed, uh, going further into childhood, they tend to hurt and harm animals uh, as kids. Um, they tend to come from very dysfunctional families. We know that certain conditions set up, and if the conditions are right, either in genetics, epigenetics, or in uh, nurture, that what we end up with is a very unhealthy human being who does really unhealthy things. But if you recognize like it's not any fault of their own, that to some extent they're either born that way or traumatized into that way of life, then you recognize that they may not have the degree of free will that a system that we're talking about in how people get to heaven and not, that system isn't set up fairly. It doesn't take into account epigenetics. It doesn't take into account nature and nurture. Instead, it's these black and white rules that don't ha ha hold up once you start explaining all the ways in which deviations occur and all the arguments for why certain things don't fit into this sort of uh, spiritual system in terms of who gets to heaven and who doesn't. And then lastly, uh, hell. Uh, group one, Satan and his followers. I'm not going to argue that. Perfect. Satan and the third of the host of heaven who refuse to choose the plan of salvation, they go to outer darkness. Group two, those who deny the Holy Ghost. This group voted in favor of God's plan in the preexistence and thus had has the opportunity to come to earth. But after coming to earth, it serves Satan and turns totally against God. Uh, Canaan is, a, is an example. Again, in light of the points that I've already made, um, I would object. I was baptized as 17 years old. I received the gift of the Holy Ghost. I prayed about the Book of Mormon. I had uh, spiritual experiences 
that with my limited understanding, I interpreted as telling me that the LDS church was true. I was all in. I believed I had the Holy Ghost, and I believed the Holy Ghost had testified to me that the church was true. Only to continue reading to the point where the information that I didn't have at that earlier stage of life overwhelmed me into letting go of belief and deconstructing Mormonism and no longer believing. And I now reject um, the Holy Ghost and the answers that I got, not because I know it's true and I just want to be a bad person. No, instead, because I used to know it's true and then new information was learned and that new information had me reinterpret those early funda foundational experiences inside Mormonism to recognize that Mormonism was anything but true. It was anything but what it claimed to be. And that my brain told me I had no choice but to discard it and to stop believing. So denying the Holy Ghost seems like a very horrible way to uh, divide up the righteous from the unrighteous. Um, it says, uh, it will be those who know God's power and have been partakers thereof and suffered themselves through the power of the devil to be overcome and to not deny the truth and defy God's power. Exactly what I just told you. That's me. So I'm going to be in outer darkness because I've been excommunicated for telling the truth about Mormonism and for suggesting that its leaders are dishonest and showing examples of such where I used to believe and I used to think I had the Holy Ghost and I used to know it was true only today to know that it's not. So I'm one of those. Has nothing to do with my goodness or my righteousness. You talk to people who interact with me and they'll say, Bill Real is a good guy. Like he seems to do the right thing. He seems to articulate a good moral position on issues. Um, but I am discarded simply because my brain told me that Mormonism isn't true, and I no longer believe it. Uh, it says that they are those uh, in this life who gain a perfect knowledge of the divinity of the gospel cause, a knowledge that comes only by revelation from the Holy Ghost, and who then link themselves with Lucifer and come out in open rebellion. Again, same kind of idea. Lastly, having knowledge, they then deny the new and everlasting covenant by which Christ was sanctified, calling it an unholy thing, and doing despite to the spirit of grace. Just FYI, new information changes everything. And notice, by the way, Mormonism makes the most serious transgressors are those who once knew that Mormonism was true, but who having studied it out and deconstructed it and having learned all the information that your religious system doesn't share with you, but which is important in being a critical thinker and having a balanced view to make a decision, all of the folks who leave under those terms are the worst of the worst in Mormonism. They are worse than the murderers. They are worse than the child molesters. They are worse than the serial killers. Um, they are worse than the adulterers. That to me is an unfair, unbalanced system. And you say, well, you can't know what God knows. God is, you know, with God, all things are possible. And then we're right back to where you're defending the indefensible. talks about how Christ atonement cannot save those uh, in outer darkness. 
Christ's atonement does not reach those in outer darkness. There is no forgiveness for them. Joseph Smith said, all sins shall be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Ghost, which I've done. Uh, For Jesus will save all except the sons of perdition. Jesus will save the murderers and the serial killers and the molesters, but not folks like me. Does that seem, is that the way you want your kingdom set up? Is that the way you want outer darkness set up? Does that make rational sense? Is that how you would best divide up the righteous from the unrighteous? And I guess I'll finish right there. Um, Again, as we go through these conversations, just note what is reasonable to believe in. And notice if you, and multiple times in this conversation, if you went, yeah, that kind of sounds a little weird. It kind of doesn't make a lot of sense. Then go one step further and go, what did you, what are you going to do with that information? And what did I do with that information? What I did was, On so many instances, again, we pointed out probably 10 or 15 contradictions today. We pointed out 10 or 15 in the last episode. We're going to point out 10 or 15 in the next one. If we go through 100 issues and every time there's 10 or 15 contradictions with rational thought, can you understand why a good person who values truth, who values learning, who has made the effort to learn the material, again, look behind me, made the effort to learn the material, arrived at the conclusion that belief in Mormonism is absurd. And then they just went one more step further. Instead of going with God, all things are possible. They said, my brain tells me it's not true. I'm going to let it go. And then the very people who could be good in every other respect, who go through that process, end up in outer darkness. Meanwhile, the serial killers and the molesters are in, the, in a kingdom of glory. And the people who probably aren't any more righteous than the rest of us, but who uh, were ignorantly obedient and learned the signs and tokens, those folks make it to the celestial kingdom. And now you've got something more to wrestle with. Have a great day. Check us out on our YouTube channel, Mormon Discussions, Inc., Facebook page, bill.real.7. You can also visit my website at mdpodcast.org. That stands for Mormon Discussion Podcast, so mdpodcast.org. You can also go to our umbrella site, mormondiscussions.org or mormondiscussionspodcast.org. Have a great day. (laughs) 